right, happy Easter, everybody. He's risen. So we're here to celebrate. Hey, um, you know, uh, uh, earlier this year, our, our two kids sent my wife and I to go see Hamilton over in Chicago, you know, the musical about one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. I understand some of you have gone and see that since it came to Detroit here. And, you know, I thought it would be nice. Maybe they just want to get rid of us for a couple days. That's fine. I'll go watch this thing. But I ended up loving it. I mean, it was great. I didn't love you know, all the profanity, but the music was incredible. The story was so engaging because, you know, it's true. Or is it? You know, so I got to go home and check out how much portrayed on stage was actually historical. And it turns out how much is accurate? Well, most of it. But there are certain spots where it's not completely accurate, where some creative license is taken, where there's some speculation, some historical inaccuracies with the timeline. And even a line in the, in the musical goes, uh, Martha Washington named her tomcat, her feral tomcat, after the lustful Hamilton. And that's when Hamilton chimes in and says, that's true. And I looked that up, and even that wasn't completely true. So you, you see this when you go to a movie, right? And it, you think you're getting a historical biography, but then it'll say it's based on a true story or it's inspired by actual events. And I roll my eyes because I know I'm not getting the truth. It's not all going to be true. What I want is something true. I want the true, real story. And I think more than anything, uh, you know, more than investigating Hamilton or any other historical figure, the importance of investigating Jesus. How true was all that? I mean, there's no question. Nobody seriously doubts that there was a man named Jesus whose life and teachings and death impacted the world immeasurably more than anybody else. But when it comes to those incredible things about his life, his miracles, and most of all, his resurrection, did that really happen or was it just based on a true story or inspired by actual events? Was he a man that was turned into a myth through exaggeration and rumors? Well, look, if this is your first time here, I'm really glad you decided to join us on this special day. Don't know what brought you here, if somebody invited you or you got bribed with a brunch or you just decided to drop in and check things out. And I don't know where you're at with your belief, if you're like a true believer or you're kind of a you know, half-hearted doubter or you're just a skeptic. Uh, we're just glad you're here because I think this is a really good place to explore faith. And no matter what your level of belief or non-belief, what I think we all need to be on the same page about today is what Easter means. What does it declare? Well, here, here's what it means. Jesus is alive and it changes everything. It's all true and that has huge implications for the world and for my life because it means that there is more to life than this life, that there is life after death. Death is not the end. And that everything I do and say here and now carries eternal implications. I take it with me into eternity. It, it means that life has meaning and purpose and, and, and that it offers the ultimate answers for suffering for ultimate justice. It brings comfort because there's the possibility now for a reunion with our loved ones. The resurrection means that Jesus was more than just another man in history, but that he was the son of God as he claimed to be. And that I matter eternally 
to this God who loves me so much that he gave his son for me. He did that for me so that I could be with him forever, experience his grace and his forgiveness, and my life would have meaning. But here we are. we got a couple of, of problems today. One is we have forgotten what to believe. In our culture now, we have a collective lack of memory about what Easter is all about. As our society has grown more secular, we, we can't remember why we're even celebrating this holiday. I mean, amidst all the candy and bunnies and eggs and flowers, uh, some people have a recollection that it's some kind of a religious story, maybe something to do with Jesus. But what, what is it really? And then a second problem is we have forgotten how to believe. We don't believe anything anymore, do we? We don't trust journalists. We hear all the fake news and the spin, and we see all the scams out there all over the place, and the rumors and the gossip, and uh, we, we've lost faith in our institutions. We don't know who to believe. We don't know. We can't tell up from down anymore. Feelings matter more than facts. And as we've become more secular, it, it's led us now to question everything. I mean, everybody's got their own truth now. You got your truth. I got my truth. And yet here we are. People are still searching for something that's true, something that's real, the real deal, something authentic. And I know for some of who don't have faith in what Easter's all about, I know it, it sounds unbelievable. We get that. We know that this all sounds very weird. In fact, downright crazy. But as crazy as it seems, it's all true, and we embrace that. You may not believe it, but you, you can believe that we believe this all happened. And so that's why it reminds me of uh, these scenes from the Star Wars movies, right, where um, the newer characters, Finn and Rey, meet the grizzled old Han Solo. And the difference in Han's beliefs when he was young versus after he experiences it for himself. Watch. That's exactly where we are with Easter. It's all true. Jesus, miracles, redemption, the resurrection, it's true. All of it. And unlike the force, which was made up by George Lucas in the 1970s, the gospel has stood this test of time. It's not myth. It's not fantasy. And I know it may seem crazy, but it's true. It is not only true historically. It's true factually. It's true reasonably. And yes, there are smart, educated people who don't believe it. But you know what? There are smart, educated people who do believe it. That's not the issue. The issue is where does the evidence point? Can we prove it's true? No. But here's what we're saying. 
It makes more sense to believe than not to. That's our big idea. That's our bottom line today. It makes more sense to believe than not to. Because look, we weren't there to witness it, so how can we possibly prove it today? Science can't prove that it happened because science is based on what is observable and repeatable. Science can't verify anything that happened historically. Why would we then believe such an unbelievable story? Well, let's check a couple of main lines of compelling evidence, along with some pretty strong circumstantial evidence. You, you, first, you've got to examine the original source documents. I challenge you to, to check those out for yourself. These things, these documents that were written not long after the events happened themselves. So if you're seeking, if you're questioning, if you're doubting, then check out the primary source materials. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all in the New Testament. Read any of them or all of them. And if you don't have a New Testament, pick one up for free out in the lobby at the tent or at Info Central, or just go online and read a, the Bible at, at BibleGateway.com or download the YouVersion Bible app onto your phone. Check it for yourself. Now, you know what people 2,000 years ago know? They, they probably weren't quite as educated or sophisticated as we are, but they knew dead people don't come back to life. They weren't stupid. They were skeptics too. In fact, some of the biggest skeptics originally were Jesus' own disciples. They didn't believe it. And that's why Luke, who wrote one of those gospels, one of those good news stories about Jesus, he's a doctor, he's a first-rate historian. And he went around and he investigated this. He didn't start off his book by saying, once upon a time in a land far away. No, he lists dates, he lists names, he lists places. He says, I interviewed the eyewitnesses and said, after Jesus rose for another 40 days, Jesus presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs, evidence that he was alive. So look, if you have to see it with your own eyes to believe, there's nothing I can do. I can't prove that to you. But then again, I can't prove anything to you historically because you weren't there to see it. Everything you know before your birth, you're trusting somebody else's testimony, aren't you? Anytime you pick up a history book, you're believing somebody else's testimony. And of course, if you want to deny the possibility of miracles, well, there's nothing I can do to convince you of that if you've never seen one for yourself. But if you will concede the fact that if there's a God who created the cosmos, then for him to raise somebody from the dead, that's not really a big deal. He could pull that off pretty simply, don't you think? So if you concede that, then what are these convincing proofs? Well, first, a large number of eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive. First, you have Mary Magdalene and the other women, which, by the way, if this were a made-up story, they would have never made women the first eyewitnesses. Why? Because Jewish legal principles of evidence didn't allow the testimony of women in court because it was viewed as unreliable. It was pretty much worthless testimony. So they, they would have never had this. And yet in Luke chapter 24, verses 9 through 12, it says, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, the disciples, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But get this, they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. I mean, it seemed crazy back then too. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, got to see it for myself. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So Peter himself is not convinced at first, but he becomes one of the key eyewitnesses because Jesus appears to him privately 
And, and he, he, he's a believer now. Jesus then appears to the 10 other apostles suddenly in their midst. And Luke goes on in verses 37 through 42 say, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? They don't believe. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And he said, am I, you think I'm an illusion? I'm just a spirit? No, a, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Let me prove it to you. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. See, I mean, he gave them the proof they needed. He didn't want them just to have a blind faith. But look, here's what, if I were making up this story, I sure wouldn't portray the disciples as unflatteringly as Luke does here because they come off looking pretty bad. I would have made them look a little bit more heroic, like in myths and legends, right? These are heroes. But no, these guys are still doubting. But you notice there's one guy who's still not there at the time. That's the apostle Thomas. And Thomas refuses to believe what the others have to say. He wants to see it for himself. He wants to touch the wounds before he will accept anybody's testimony. And so he's demanding the the ultimate test uh, uh, proof. And that's why he gets the name Doubting Thomas. But of course, he gets it about a week later when Jesus shows up to all the apostles and he says to Thomas, go ahead, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now understand, Jesus didn't just appear to a few close friends. Scripture says he also appeared to over 500 people. The Apostle Paul writes about that not not even 25 years after it happened in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and to the 12. After that, he appeared to, here it is, more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who's that? That's Jesus' brother didn't believe in Jesus as the Savior until after he rose again. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So Paul is saying, look, the witnesses are still around. Go ahead, ask them for yourselves. This is common knowledge. They can either confirm or deny the accuracy of what I'm telling you. And and the one that's writing this passage, who was known as Saul, The apostle Saul, he becomes Paul, the apostle. I mean, this is a guy who was a persecutor of Christians. He's trying to stamp out faith until Jesus appears to him in a vision. And then he becomes a believer too. How do you explain the conversion of Paul who becomes, without a doubt, the greatest Christian leader and writer of all time? What happened? that would make him give up his former influential, important life to experience nothing but rejection and beatings and imprisonment and even death. He staked his entire life on the fact of the resurrection. So look, you don't have to believe any of this, but I'm just saying if you don't, you've got a lot of faith. I mean, to believe that this is all just a made-up hoax. And then you got to look at the other major line of evidence, and that's the empty tomb. How did the stone get rolled away from a guarded tomb, guarded by soldiers with a Roman seal over it, 
And I, some have tried to come up with the most crazy explanations for that, like, well, Jesus never really died. Okay, well, that certainly doesn't add up historically or logically, no. Others have said, well, the body was stolen. Okay, so yeah, the tomb was empty, but somebody took the body. In fact, that's what one of the eyewitnesses, the disciple Matthew says in his book. He says, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, a bribe, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, what's wrong with that story? Why won't that hold up in court? Think about it. If you're asleep, how do you know anybody stole the body? Certainly, how do you know it was the disciples? And how do they roll that big stone away without waking the soldiers up? In fact, the penalty for a soldier falling asleep on his watch was death. So you would never admit you fell asleep. And why didn't they ever arrest the disciples if they broke a Roman seal and stole a body? I'm just, if this was a made up story, it would have been a lot easier to keep the location of the tomb a secret. Like they say, well, the tomb's empty, but you know, you can't, you can't go see it because you know, we don't know where it is. No, they, they named who the owner of the tomb was, Joseph of Arimathea. They said, here's the location. Look, if, if that tomb wasn't empty, this story wouldn't have held up even for a day in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified. All the enemies of Christ had to do was produce his dead body and the whole thing would have fallen apart. But it's never been produced. It's never been produced. The, look, the disciples had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by stealing the body. And they, they certainly don't run away to some other part of the world. They stay right there in Jerusalem and proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. What explains that? And let's not forget the circumstantial evidence. Consider the birth of the church. How did the church get started and grow in the very city where Jesus was crucified? How do you have all these thousands of people getting baptized, this emergence of baptism where people are showing, I believe, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Where'd that come from? That all these Jewish people giving up all of their rules and rituals and animal sacrifices of Judaism, and they stop worshiping on the, one of the Ten Commandments, the day of the Sabbath, Saturday, and switch to Sunday worship. Something big had to happen on Sunday. Guess what? Easter. Historians can't account for any of this unless there was something big enough to cause all these people to, to do this. And, and Christianity explodes, grows like crazy, and a few billion people today claim to be Christians. And you think about it, on the very same day, in the same place, at the same time, two other men died on crosses next to Jesus. You know their names? No, you don't. You know why? Because they're dead. Jesus is alive. That's why we follow him. And consider the change in the disciples themselves. I mean, it's incredible to think that these disciples who just had fled and hid, led by Peter, who denied Jesus, now just a few days later, they go before those same Jewish authorities and boldly accuse them of murdering Jesus. How do you account for them, these cowardly disciples, turning into such men of courage and conviction that they're willing to die? Tell you what, they weren't afraid of death because their leader had died and risen again. People are willing to die for what they believe with all their heart to be true. But who dies for a lie? 
Who would die for a lie? All of those apostles, except for one, died horrific deaths. Who would suffer like that for a fraud? Come on, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Nobody's going to go, oh, you know what? <clears throat> yeah, um, just kidding, man. I mean, this whole resurrection thing, come on, we're just putting you on. You didn't really believe that. All they had to do was renounce their faith, and they could have continued to live. But they, they go to their graves believing it. And look, okay, you, you still don't have to believe this is true, but you have to believe that they believed it was true. Now, in the generations that follow, thousands more are going to go through the same thing, the persecutions, the beatings, the burnings, the stonings, being thrown to the lions, because they're absolutely convinced that Jesus was alive, and they laid down their life as the proof. And by the way, this isn't the only place it's written about in the New Testament, in these books, these eyewitnesses. There are other documents, too. There are, this is documented by other early historians who are not Christians. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, talks about these Christians suffering and dying for their belief in Jesus. And then very other, other documents, early Christian writers like Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Tertullian all refer to the resurrection. Okay. So, all right, there's, there's evidence, but even if you discount all that evidence from 2,000 years ago, I think some of the best proof is right here staring us in the face today. The lives of millions of people all over the world from all different cultures and backgrounds who testify that no single thing has changed their life more than Jesus Christ. And so if you want to dig into this deeper, I challenge you to, to I, I'll give you three books that you can check out. In fact, write these down or take a picture of the screen. We're going to put them up there for you. These are all books written by atheists who became believers. For example, C.S. Lewis was the famous Oxford professor who not only ended up writing the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but also an important influential book defending the faith called Mere Christianity. Then you have Lee Strobel, an investigative journalist whose book, The Case for Christ, was turned into a movie about his life. You can still go watch it on Netflix. Or how about J. Warner Wallace, who is a prominent homicide detective whose high-profile cases have been all over TV. What he did is apply his crime scene techniques to Jesus and wrote the book Cold Case Christianity. All of them were atheists who studied the evidence and became believers. But I also want you to hear from somebody right here at home who was struggling with belief as well. Watch. I think my story begins basically when I was in, when I was in grade school. I went to a Catholic church, and, or a Catholic grade school. My father passed away when I was eight years old, and so we were, I remember sitting in school, in grade school, and they had asked me a simple question like, uh, well, we were put onto two different teams, and these teams went along the line of, you're going to be for God, and you're going to be against God. And it wasn't far after that. I mean, it was, it was only a couple months after that my dad, or my dad had passed away. So this was a couple months after my dad passed away. And I can remember the teacher looking at me and saying, you're going to be the one against God. And I'm going, wow, I got to be against God. Well, okay, I guess this is what we do because this is what the teacher's making us do. So, as I go and do this thing, the question comes up, and I get to be this brave young kid, and I said, Who, what kind of God would take their dad away from somebody who's eight years old, plus 
leave a family of six with my mom and and not and just leave us with nothing, you know? Leave us without a dad. And I remember the answer, and this was the part that struck me. I know better now, but the answer that she gave us was because that's what he wanted to do. That just wasn't right, you know? <laughs> I mean, that just wasn't right. You can't just say, well, that's what God wanted to do so he could do it. And I mean, I can understand that his will has to be done. Of course, now I'm an adult and I've gotten closer to him than that. But that didn't sit right with me. So again, I'm back to that point where I just don't know if God exists really, or if He doesn't exist. I really am still fighting that. I want to walk with you, Jesus, and feel your presence and know you're near. I want to see you, Jesus, delivery and my life at that time was hard because I was going through a divorce I had like I've been working two jobs I have so many things going on my life's in turmoil and I remember I got in the truck to take this delivery out to a person and I, as I'm driving in the truck it just occurs to me that I need to I'm gonna ask this question because if God if you're there I said would you would you please just let me know that you exist? I've been walking this fence line, God, for so long that I can't tell if there's really a God to pray to or if this is just some figment of imagination by from somebody else. I don't need you to show up right next to me and scare me, but I'd, I'd just love it if you would give me a message that I know, I know came from you. I left it at that. As I, as I pulled up to deliver this pizza, not five minutes later, I get out of my car and walk up to the door and knock on the door. A guy comes up to the door and he answers it, invites me in. <laughs> and I walk in the door, he, I hand him the pizza and he says, hold on a minute. And so he sets the pizza down. He turns around, looks at me, reaches his hand out and says, God loves you. God loves you. And I, I didn't know what to think at that moment. I, I honestly was struck. I mean, it was like somebody walked up and hit me in the head with a two by four. Because here I just asked, I mean, literally just asked. 
And I have never been on a pizza delivery before where somebody walked up and said, hey, God loves you, right? Um, I've never been on one ever again after that either, so it's never happened to me. I remember driving home and, and I don't even remember the, the cleansing that happened to me. It was like, it was like all of a sudden, all of these things that I wanted to believe in but couldn't because it was just too good to be true. It was real and he was there. And now I had to get to work on getting closer to him. I need to hear you now. Honey, you know it's you. believer for many years. I have 20, 25, 30 years now and uh, never, never doubted ever again that God exists. I pray to him all the time. He's always been in my life ever since and uh, that's a great spot to be in. It's just a great spot to be in. You can't stop getting closer to God. I think I think that if you grow and you grow in your faith, you start to learn what His will is more and more. And the more you learn what His will is, the happier you become because through Him we are everything. He is everything. The more we become closer to Him, the better we become. So don't stop growing. Don't stop learning. Chase after God. He's right there, and He wants to see you. He wants you to be close to Him, and He wants to help you. Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe. I know that I am probably speaking to a room full of mostly believers, but if you're having trouble, difficulty believing, maybe it's because it's more personal than intellectual. Maybe it's because of the experiences that you've had, adversity, the loss of a loved one, and you just can't seem to bring yourself to believe through so much hurt and confusion. Or maybe it's because you really don't want to believe because it does have huge implications for your life. And so uh, I think for many of us here, we've, we've gone through these kinds of struggles and doubts and questions too. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence like Bill and you've been asking God for a sign. But guess what? The sign has already been given. It's in the shape of a cross. God has already showed you, proved to you, I love you. And the resurrection proves 
that everything Jesus claimed is true. And when many of us here heard that or read that, it rang true. It resonated deep within us, and we were convicted that, hey, it makes more sense to believe than not to. You know, when Doubting Thomas finally encountered Christ, Jesus said this to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's me and you, or it can be you. Because look, if you don't want to believe, there's nothing I can do to convince you. Because that's a matter of the will. That's not just a matter of the mind. And just understand, too, if you choose not to believe, that's just as much an act of faith. Because you have to overlook the evidence, and nobody can disprove it. Nobody has disproved it. And if you want to believe, I can give you answers to your questions. But if you don't want to believe, all those answers will just generate more arguments. If you don't want to believe, that's not really a head problem. That's a heart problem. And because believing does mean that, yeah, I'm going to have to change the course of my life. I got to humble myself and admit, or what God calls repent. I got to admit that because of my disbelief and my disobedience to God, that I need to be forgiven, that I need a savior, that I need to invite Jesus to be the leader of my life, the Lord. And that, that changes everything as he, as he starts to fix up and clean up my whole life. And the only way to to experience that for yourself is to believe. Here's your chance to discover the life that he has for you and to experience a real relationship with the living God. Jesus is alive and he changes everything. I invite you to pray with me. You can say this in your own words and say, God, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm glad you know us and you care about us and you proved it. And what a dif- difference you've made in my life and in so many others. What a change you've made in our hearts. And because your son is alive, I can face the troubles and disappointments of this world. I don't have to go to bed fearful about the future or about what would happen if I die because I know I'd be with you in heaven. You've shown us love, you give us your son so that we can be forgiven of all of our unbelief and rejection and our, our rebellion and our regrets. And you've given me peace, a clean conscience. You help me to overcome those temptations to do wrong and you, you guide me into doing what's good and what's right. And you've given me a real reason to live and a hope beyond death. And that's why I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 